come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. listeners to episode 115 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always i'm your tour guide here of david garrett jr recording out of columbus ohio and on this episode here for you is i have new year new movie number eight as the two movies that i have synced up here for a double feature are doom asylum this is the one that the randomizer kind of landed on so i decided to watch that this is a weird little slasher film, and then I also have it paired up with From Here in 2022 of Rucker. And then for you as well, for mini reviews, I have Vampire. This is doing my trek through the twos. That's a movie from, I believe, 1932. And then I have for you as well is Revenge, a screener of Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes, and Annabelle Creation. I don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here for this episode, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini-reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile And for my first mini-review of this week is going to be Vampire. This is from 1932. This was directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer, who also helped co-write the screenplay with Christian Jewell. And this is based on the book by Sheridan Lee Fanu. This stars Julian West, Maurice Schutz, and Rena Mandel. This is a fantasy horror film that is from a co-production of Germany and France. This is currently sitting on a 7.5 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, A drifter obsessed with the supernatural stumbles upon an inn where a severely ill adolescent girl is slowly becoming a vampire. So this is a movie that I first heard about thanks to a film class in college. I picked up a copy of the Criterion Collection DVD around that time as well, so I could you know watch it in my apartment. This is one that I think I've seen once, but sitting down to watch it this time, I didn't remember much aside from some of the shots that kind of stuck out to me, and anytime I heard about this movie, they would pop into my head. And none of the story actually stuck with me, though, so I will say that. So where I'm going to start off here then would be that 
I originally didn't think there was much to the story, but there's more that I realized about it. I did want to start off with that, you know. It is interesting that this movie came out a year after Dracula and a decade after Nosferatu. This movie is using vampirism, but in a much different way than the novel by Bram Stoker. I think that is what I liked best about the story here, to be honest. And then to delve a bit more into it, we have the main character of Alan is given a book on the history of vampires from The Lord of the Manor. I bring this up because the other two movies are based off of, you know, the same novel, but that book doesn't seem to have the lore that they're using here in this movie. The history book tells that they do not know how to kill vampires. There is an example of a village that was thought to be plagued by one of these monsters and what they did. Now, the powers are much different as well. The vampire needs to feed on blood in order to survive. It drives the victim to kill themselves and preventing their souls from going to heaven. Now, part of this reason is that they are able to control souls, especially ones that have been executed for crimes. So pretty much anybody that is damned, they can use that. And they can also control some humans as well. I like that this movie was taking a monster and setting up its own mythos with it. So introducing these things lead them to where they're being used in this movie. And I want to go with the cinematography here. How this was shot was amazing for 1932. We get to see nightmarish things with shadows that made me feel uneasy watching it there are shadows that there's like nothing casting it and they're moving on their own i like this idea as they're establishing to us that they're ghosts there are some tricks done with the film that were also impressive to me we also see that alan may have an out-of-body experience as well and then we don't get a lot in the way of effects actually but this is also early cinema and what we get did get was well done so in a circle back to the story, I do have some slight issues as well. I think they needed just a bit more. By the end of this, I did have some questions, and reflecting on it while writing the review, I think I was able to piece together some of what this movie is trying to convey. There are clever things done with this book, as well as something with this old woman. Now, there are title cards to explain things, and I thought that was interesting and a bit outdated by this time. I did figure out that production for this was right there at the end of the silent era so they were still kind of doing that type of thing and they didn't really know how to establish some of the story so that's why they did it now none of this ruins it it's just a different way of doing things there is the idea that they didn't trust their storytelling enough without them as i was saying so where i'll go next would be the acting it isn't great but i'm also not going to hold it against the movie talking films were still new so i wouldn't be shocked to see if many of these actors had never had a part prior to this or were just in silent films and actually looking it up i was pretty dead on now, our main character of Wes looks to be mystified for most of the movie. With some of the things that he's seeing, though, that makes sense to me. I think that Schutz, who plays the Lord of the Manor, adds a layer of creepiness when he appears in Alan's room. Then we have Mandel and Schmitz are fine as his two daughters. What I like, though, is that you don't know who you can trust here. Now, we have somebody like Hiro Minko, Gerard, Mora, and Boyden. All these people are playing like a doctor, they're playing people that work in the house, just things like that. I think that all of them kind of add another layer here. And I also should give credit to the only other two actors in the movie of Brass and Babanini, as I both thought they were solid as well. So the last thing to go into would be the soundtrack. Many times with movies from this era, I'm not sure if the music synced up was intended originally. For this one, I do know that some of the original negatives were lost, and this had to be pieced together between the German and French versions of it. Now, the DVD I have, that's what they were, you know, working with for it. So the soundtrack helped to build the atmosphere, so I will give credit to that. 
So in conclusion here, this movie is an important piece of cinema. What I like about it is that we're getting a vampire story that is set in its own mythology and not borrowing from movies that were popular before it. I do still think the story is lacking just a bit though. There are some things that were done with the atmosphere, both from the images that we were seeing on the screen and the soundtrack with it, so I will give credit for that. I'd say that the acting is fine, but be warned that this is from 1932, so we are early into cinema. If you are into the history, give this one a watch for sure. So my rating here for Vampire is going to be an 8 out of 10. And then the second movie I got to watch for this week is Revenge from 2017. This was written and directed by Coralie Farget. This stars Matilda, Anna Ingrid Lutz, Kevin Janison, and Vincent Colombi. This is an action horror thriller film that is a co-production between France and Belgium. This is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, never take your mistress on an annual guy's getaway, especially one devoted to hunting. A violent lesson for three wealthy married men. So this is a movie that when it first came out, I started doing year-end lists of horror movies. So I caught the trailer for this at the Gateway Film Center and decided to give it a go there. It had me intrigued and I was excited to check it out. I have now given it a second viewing as part of the summer series for the podcast Under the Stairs. So there's not a whole lot to this actual movie and that synopsis pretty much, I think, kind of gives you a nutshell of it. So where I'll start is that I like this movie doesn't play up the attack on our female character of Jen too much. I've seen a good number of rape revenge films in my day. Showing the attack has its merits, but not for everyone. I thought it was strong enough to convey it by the sounds that we are hearing from outside of the room. Now, what Dimitri does to ignore it adds to it as well. It is quite heartbreaking, to be honest. Now, in the beginning, Jamie was watching this with me, and I warned her what was to come. Now, she wasn't planning on watching the whole thing as she was getting ready to go to bed anyways, but I just bring it up as a warning that if this is a trigger for some people, do not watch this. From there, seeing Jenna, she tries to pull herself together and what she does to get back at the men is satisfying. Something I want to add here, and I notice with the second viewing, is nothing comes easy for her. How she is talking in the beginning and the compliments that are being paid to her, it seems like with her beauty and how nice her body is, things just happen. We see as she fights back that her plans don't work out how she is expecting. It adds a sense of realism there, and it's low-key great for me. This helps with tension by making it a cat and mouse game as well. So a film like this needed a great cast. And I think that we get that to an extent. Lutz is amazing in her portrayal of Jen. I thought she killed it literally and figuratively. She starts out as a timid, gorgeous girl that when she is pushed to her limits with what happens to her, she gets her revenge. I thought it made it look realistic, as I was saying. I thought the three men were great and having these kind of distinct type of characters, Janison's is their leader and he is the one who is wanting to silence her the most. He's also the biggest jerk. It feels like he's not used to being told no. Column B wants to stop what they're doing before it is too late, but he is like Richard and he starts the crux of all their problems. So, I mean, he's kind of a jerk there. And then we have Boshendi, who isn't overly developed and is quiet, but he's definitely complacent in stuff that is happening here. Now, outside of that, I think that the cast that we get for like people in a television commercial and briefly meet a helicopter pilot, as well as hearing the voice of Richard's wife, they were all fine as well. So then to go with the acting, I thought, are the effects. They are so realistic, they had me cringing a lot at times. I can't do the sight of blood in real life, and it looked good in this movie. The injuries also look extremely realistic as well. It not only truly blew me away, but it also helped the film. The one that really got me is something that happens to Jen as she falls, as well as what happens to Stan when he steps on a piece of glass. Both still make me cringe to think about. 
There's a lot of blood in this one, and it does make me question if some people could be alive for how much blood that we see lost. I can be forgiving of it and say that it's it's possible. There is an issue with a burn that we get as well. It doesn't ruin the movie for me, so I don't mind it. So then the last thing I'll go into here would be the sound design of the film, which I thought was good. The music earlier is being played while they're partying, and it's fitting. It also transitions for us to hear that... Some of the stuff's coming from like her iPod, so I thought that was kind of a cool thing that we're actually getting music that is ambient to our world. We also get music in the film that helps to build tension for the scenes. Some of it comes from when a character is stalked by another, but then we get some that are more grand while characters are trying to kill each other as well. It fit the film and it adds another layer to what we're getting. Not a soundtrack I would listen to on my own, but it works for what was needed. So now with that said, I wouldn't recommend this one to everyone. I'm not saying this is bad by any stretch. It's a you know bloody revenge film that's pretty fun if you can handle that i'd say give this one a go this film is also interesting that it's based on a rape but downplays it in an effective way the story is basic yet there's enough to explain the actions taken the acting is solid and the effects are what sell it i was also impressed with the sound design and soundtrack and i thought that was all good there the setting also helps to build tension as it's only accessible by helicopter or a long drive there's just a desolate feeling that comes with it i would recommend giving this a viewing if you can stomach the blood and effects it is one of the better films I've seen this year for sure. So my rating here for Revenge is going to be, once again, an 8 out of 10. And then up next for you, I have a movie that's not necessarily a horror film, but I did get to watch the screener for it. So I was going to go ahead and make sure that I, you know, covered this one. And it's kind of interesting is that we... I'll get into it here in a second. But the movie is Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. This goes by the original title of Drosti no Hati di Bokura. This is directed by Yunta Yamaguchi. It was written by Yomokoto Uida. This stars Kazurini Tosha, Riku Fujitani, and Gota Ashida. So if I did mispronounce any of those names, I do apologize. But this is a comedy sci-fi film that is from Japan. It is currently sitting on a 7.4 on IMDb and a 3.9 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a cafe, owner discovers that the TV in his cafe suddenly shows images from the future, but only two minutes into the future. So this is a movie that I got the opportunity to see through a screener thanks to Justin Cook. When reading the synopsis that was provided to me, I knew this was not a horror movie, but when I saw that I could, you know, deal with time travel or time loops a bit, that piqued my interest. I decided to go ahead and watch this one and write up this review here. So this one's going to be, you know, fairly brief, but this movie doesn't have the deepest story, but... It doesn't necessarily need that, and I'm not saying that this movie isn't deep, though. We are getting more of the theories that are being explored here and more of this group as it complicates what they're doing. The higher the stakes that they raise from it are as well. It is brought up by someone that they need to ensure that the path that they set up is fulfilled or it could create a paradox because this premise pretty much is that... Now, I did give you the synopsis, but to go a little bit more is that we have Kato, who is this cafe owner... He has this monitor in his room because he lives above the cafe that he owns. And through it, he can actually see two minutes into the future. And then him and his friends kind of decide to, you know, complicate things from there. Now, Kato isn't enjoying this as much as his friends are. He's the voice of reason to let it be. So when bad things happen, he's bummed. I'm interested in time travel loops and the like. So this hooked me to see where things would play out. Now, I'm not going to go too scientific here as... I can't explain the theories all that well, and I just really wanted to flesh out more of what they're doing, though. 
I like this idea of a time delay with recording or watching a screen that if used properly could, you know, result in time travel. Ultimately, the monitor from upstairs is brought down to the cafe. It is then set up to be directed at each other. The idea here is that they can look further into the future by doing this. This does work and it gets to be quite interesting. When it's just upstairs, we are seeing one side of a conversation. The movie then take it downstairs to show the other side. With both monitors in one room facing each other, we see a bunch of events happening at different intervals to ensure that it keeps with what happened previously. The ultimate situation that is faced is breaking this or status quo to go along with the path of time. I just like this movie is setting up the theory that time is a flat circle, but as humans, we only interpret it linear. So then going along with this, I should cover the cinematography. As this movie is going on, I was trying to figure out if this was done in one take or not, but that's what they're selling us that it is. I can't disprove that there were any cuts, so making a 70-minute movie like this is impressive. What really gets me is the editing done to ensure that they filmed on one side was shown on the other. I'm not sure if they ran it through twice, filmed it, and then used it to be shown on the monitors that we are seeing, or if this is all just done in real time. Regardless, this was a feat that I'm impressed with, and what I thought I had read as I was going down through this is that I thought the director of One Cut of the Dead did this movie here. He didn't. He watched this and thought this was a comedic masterpiece, so that's what kind of got me, you know, hung up that I wanted to at least come back to at some point. The only way that this would work, though, would be the acting as well. I thought our cast was good and distinct with where I knew the characters. I might not always know their name, though. I like that we have Tosa as Kato, who discovers this, and then at once doesn't want to mess with it. I like that we have Fujitani as his bubbly personality of his employee. Ashida and Saki are the annoying friends that work. It is good to have Sua who is piecing things together and explaining it to the audience. Other than that, the rest of the cast I thought was good to round out for what we needed as well. So in conclusion here, this is a fun movie. We have an interesting gimmick here that makes this time travel parts of the movie that much more impressive to me. The cinematography, editing, and acting all help bring this to life in an interesting way. There is even a bit of a feel-good comedy here that warmed my soul. The movie is exploring interesting theories about time travel loops and what happens if a different path is taken. There are even jokes that play from it there as well. It is also delving a bit into self-fulfilling prophecies, but be warned this is from Japan, so it is subtitled. If that's an issue, I'd avoid this one. Overall, I'd say this is a good movie for me, so my rating here for Beyond the Infinite 2 Minutes is going to be an 8 out of 10. And then I got to watch Annabelle Creation. This is from 2017. This was directed by David F. Sandberg. It was written by Gary Doberman, and these are also based on the characters created by him. This stars Anthony La Pagila, Samara Lee, and Miranda Otto. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being 12 years after the tragic death of their little girl, a doll maker and his wife welcome a nun and several girls from a shuttered orphanage into their home where they become the target of the doll maker's possessed creation, Annabelle. So this was a movie that I sought out as I was continuing with The Conjuring Universe. I originally had heard good things through podcasts, so that helped me to seek this one out. Now, I'm also sure that I saw this in doing my first year-end list as well. I'm now giving it a second viewing as part of the summer series for the podcast, Under the Stairs. So then, I will admit, I was leery coming in to see this one for the first time. Because I was disappointed by the original Annabelle movie. I had heard good things from some of the podcasts, as I said, and decided to watch it that first time around. This one, I ended up enjoying quite a bit more with the second viewing as well. We are... Living up to the name and seeing how the doll was created. 
Something I want to put here is it looks creepy almost too much so for children. Looking back though, some older dolls are scary looking. From there we gradually see the haunting as it escalates and even learn what happens as to how this demon came to inhabit it. That all worked for me and I like how we're getting the concept of people dabbling in things that they do not understand and the repercussions as well. And something else I learned and noticed this time around with the second viewing was how bloody this movie was. That didn't stick with me. Going along with this, most of our cast is younger people and children. Usually for prequels, it loses something with the stakes for me, as I know some people are protected and must survive. We aren't getting that here. These children that die in the movie, and that adds tension to what we're seeing. And the last thing I'll give credit to is not violating continuity. We are getting references to The Conjuring 2 with a picture that Sister Charlotte has, as well as an after-the-credits sequence alluding to the next movie in the cinematic universe. I like giving us the backstory to this doll and leading into what happens once Ed and Lorraine Warren come across it in the movies after this timeline as well. So then I'll go on to the acting here, which I thought was solid as well. La Pagila is great. We see how happy he is in the beginning and how withdrawn he has become after the death of his daughter. It just looks like a broken man who is depressed. To build off that, he also shows fear when he realizes the evil is still in this house. Otto doesn't get a lot of screen time, but I felt she was good as well. Now, she's a solid actor. What is interesting about her is that she had an accident that makes her bedridden. She has been reduced to a specter due to being hidden away. Now, she's a broken woman herself. And then we also have Bateman was good for being a child actor. Now, she is the one who is playing Janice, and she plays well off her physical ailment, as well as showing fear and the wariness that comes with it. I'll also give credit to Lulu Wilson here as her friend. The other girls are fine as well in my eyes, and Sigmund was good as this nun and was also easy to look at on top of that. So next I'll go to would be the effects. They were done mostly with CGI, which I am normally not a fan of, but I will say I think they looked good here. I didn't see anything that looked fake to me. I love the demon that we see normally in the shadows or we get quick glimpses of it. That makes it scarier for me. This film did some good things with the cinematography as well. We see things moving around behind characters that they didn't notice, which terrifies me. There's also a lot of being used of mirrors and shots. I thought it was a good touch. I felt this film is edited well. It builds tension to the climax, which is good. And I also love some of the transitions, especially how they ended it. You know, tying it back in with the original film. The score of this one was decent. They have a song they play over and over, which is associated with the little girl in the movie, as well as the demon. I thought this was good and the song choice helps set the mood. If I have an issue here, I think the movie runs too long. There could have been a bit trimmed as I don't know if it adds all that much, but that would be about it. So now with that said, I would recommend seeing this film here. I feel this one stands up with The Conjuring unlike the original Annabelle film. This one was much tighter to me and had a better story. I do think this one could have been viewed as part of the universe or watched as a standalone. Thought the acting was good. The effects were as well. The scares were not all based on jump scares, which I'm glad for. We get some brooding atmosphere, which I enjoyed. The editing helps to build tension along with the story until the climax. The score was solid as well, in my opinion. If anything, this could have been a bit trimmed to help it run tighter, in my opinion. I would say, though, this is a good demon possession type film. And my rating here for Annabelle Creation is an 8 out of 10. And that's all I have for mini reviews for this week. So let me go ahead and get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. But I'm worried now, that legend about the coroner? Nobody ever got killed by a legend. Back in a flash. And if I'm not, don't come looking for me.
And for my first featured review on this episode here is going to be Doom Asylum. This is from 1987. This was directed by Richard Friedman, who also helped come up with the story along with Stephen G. Menken and Richard Marks. And Marks also wrote the screenplay. The stars Patty Mullen, Ruth Collins, and Kristen Davis, while also featuring William Hay, Kenny L. Price, Harrison White, Don Alvin, Farin, Michael Rogan, Harvey Keith, Stephen G. Menken, and Paul Georgie. This is a comedy horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.6 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a horribly disfigured lawyer, wrongfully pronounced dead after a terrible car accident, is taken to an asylum for dissection, only to come back alive, kill everyone, and make the asylum his killing grounds. So this movie that I didn't hear about until I was getting into podcasts, it popped up a couple of times, so I'm assuming that this movie must have gotten a release in the last few years. So the reason I checked this out as part of this, you know, New Year, New Me segment here on the podcast, the randomizer pulled this movie's number. I was originally going to watch this as a second feature review on the first episode, but because a 2022 film popped up on Amazon Prime, I decided to move this here to a featured review for this second episode of the year. I didn't remember a lot about what others had said about this movie, so I came in as a pretty blank slate as, you know, much as I could. So before I get into the movie itself, let me do some of the featured notes here, is that our director of Friedman has 15 credits in this role. I've only seen this movie from him. It also looks like his most popular one is this. Of his works, Six Are Horror. His first was 1985 called Stephen King's Golden Tales, which I've never heard of that one. He followed it with a movie called Scared Stiff. This one here, Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, Dark Wolf, and Born. Now I've only seen this movie here as I was saying. And then as a writer, he has six credits. Only two are in the genre, with this one here in Scared Stiff, so this is the only movie I've seen so far from that. Then moving over to Marks, he has 21 credits. This is the only one that I've seen as well, and this looks to be his only horror movie, but it does actually kind of look interesting because I didn't know that on Letterboxd they did adult movies, but early in his career it looks like he wrote porn. And then our last writer is Menken. This is his only credit, and then moving to our cast, I'll start with Mullen. She is most famous for being Frankenhooker. She has been in two movies, both are horror, and it's that movie there and this movie here, and I've seen all of her work then. And then to Davis, she has 24 credits. I know her from things like Couples Retreat, Nine Months, and Sex in the City. This is her first movie and only one in horror. And then finally, I'll look at Collins. She has 24 credits. This is her most popular. Now, she does have nine works are being in horror, with the first one being Psychos in Love as the first. I've only ever seen her in this movie here at this time. So much like the synopsis states, we start this movie in a car where we have Judy LaRue, portrayed by Mullen, and Mitch Hansen, portrayed by Rogan. Now, he is driving. They are both celebrating as he is her lawyer, and she won a big settlement. They are running away together. Due to not paying attention, though, they get into a car accident. It is quite horrific as Mitch's face is all tore up and Judy is missing a hand. The movie then shifts over to a morgue where a medical examiner and his assistant are prepping for an autopsy on Mitch, but he's not dead, and he kills both of them. The movie then shifts 10 years into the future. We have a group of kids in a car. Now we have Kiki, who is portrayed by Mullen as well, and then she is with her boyfriend of Mike, portrayed by Hay. He is indecisive about everything, so they stop off at a spot where her mother died. In the car with them is Jane, portrayed by Davis. Now, she's a bookworm and a psychology major. There's also Dennis, who's portrayed by Price, who is into baseball cards. And then we have Darnell, portrayed by White. 
Now, their destination is an abandoned asylum. When our group arrives, they hear some music. Inside is a band of young women practicing. The lead singer is Tina, portrayed by Collins, and she is joined by Gadiva, portrayed by Elvin, and Rapunzel, portrayed by Farin. These two groups mess around with each other and in a bad way, and we see that since they run with different groups, they don't get along. But they're also not alone. We get to hear about these urban legends of this asylum. People go missing in the area, and some are hurt while being there. Neither group seems to care, though. Now, Kiki and Jane get into their bikinis to take in some of the sun, and the legend is true, though, as Mitch continues attacking anyone who comes near his asylum. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap, and where I want to start is that there isn't a lot to this movie. We are getting a later slasher film where we have a basic premise to get our teens to the place before our killer starts picking them off. This movie also fits the era in that we get comedy infused as well. Not to play my cards too early, but I wasn't a fan of that. There is a promise to this movie though, but it feels like they took the easy route and just made a movie that is bland for me. So before getting into too much more of the negatives, I want to go to the positives. I like the idea that we have here. Mitch is disfigured after his accident. This isn't a new idea for slasher movies, and it's one that we still see today. I'm fine with this idea though. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Him using different instruments that you would for an autopsy also sets us apart for me. This leads to some interesting deaths. I'm not in love with the look of him after he is disfigured. They have the right idea, but it just looks like rubber. And I'm also not a fan of what they wanted to have, you know, Rogan using one-liners. I think his performance is fine. There's just not a lot to work with there. So going along with this, I think the setting is fine. I can buy these teens would come here to hang out. If there is this urban legend of deaths, maybe not. But they did come here during the day, so there is that. The setting looks good, and... I just don't know if it makes it feel as menacing since we also have Tina and her band practicing her. So I'm assuming like they come here, you know, pretty regularly. I'm torn on this as I think the place works, but fleshing it out isn't there. So the next part I'll go into would be the comedy, and I might as well include the acting on top of that. The comedy just doesn't work for me. Maybe this movie is one that I shouldn't watch alone and needed people, but here we are. Collins is over the top as Tina. Davis is smart, but she goes way overboard even when she is faced with a killer. Hayes' indecisiveness makes him not feel real. I don't even think that Mullen is all that good here as well because she just has some weird things that she says to her boyfriend and just kind of put me off and doesn't feel natural. And I would say that the rest of the cast just overact as well. They are going for comedy and playing caricatures of people you will see. I'm assuming a lot of this is trying to be funny, but it just doesn't land. And it doesn't fit or work for me. So then I'll also go then to the rest of the effects, the cinematography, and the soundtrack. For the former, I've already said that I had my issues with Mitch and how he's done up. But I think the rest of the effects are good. The deaths are solid. I also feel like this crew knew what they could do for the deaths. And they decided to focus there and neglected some of the finer points. I don't have issues with doing that. It just, I feel like they could have done some more with the script here to help things in the, like for the story and everything. Because it's just not there. As for the cinematography, I think it's shot well. We get some good POV of the killer. I like the setting on top of that. This part is probably the strongest, to be honest, are the cinematography and the effects. Then for the soundtrack, much like the other parts of the movie, this is hit or miss. We get some good atmospheric music, including a song that mimics a heartbeat. There are also some songs here that just take me out of the movie, including Tina and her band practicing. I can be forgiving there since it fits the movie, since they're actually, and it's from the like world of the movie. There's just a couple of selections used for comedy that I just don't like. So then before I close this out, let me do a little bit of trivia from the IMDb page. And Collins was paid $100 to bear her breasts in this film. 
This was shot on location in an actual abandoned sanitarium in Verona, New Jersey. Shot in eight days. First film for Davis, as I said earlier. Now, the Essex Mountain Sanatorium, the film's location, opened its wards in 1907, with the last patient being released in 77, with the sanatorium officially closing its door and ceasing all operations. On the 1st of December... 1982, the gates locked for the very last time and completely abandoned and was demolished in the early 90s with the remaining outlying buildings some 10 years later. Now, there's some graffiti for bands here, like we have Metallica. There's some Led Zeppelin, Exodus, Ozzy Osbourne, Suicidal Tendencies, Black Sabbath, Pink Floyd, and Wasp. This movie is from July 9th, 1977, so it fell on a Saturday is when it takes place. There's somebody reading Sigmund Freud's The Interpretation of Dreams. And there's also some references here to the war on drugs as well as to communism and the Russian Revolution as well. So then, with that said, this movie has some good aspects and some that just don't work for me. I like the idea of a killer roaming in an abandoned asylum. His look isn't the greatest, but I can work with what they do for the deaths. The instruments used are a bright spot and the effects of the deaths are as well. The comedy doesn't work for me though, and in turn the acting isn't very good with that. It just feels like a cop-out to be honest. I'd say the cinematography is solid and the soundtrack was hit or miss. For me, this is an average movie. There are things positive I like and negatives that I hate, so I'll put this right there in the middle. So my rating here for Doom Asylum is going to be a 5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, don't really think I need to do that, so I'll go ahead and get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Thank you for agreeing to make this documentary. My name's Rucker. Rounds with Trucker. That's my wife, Darlene. She's a real looker, ain't she? What is your contribution to society as truckers? My contribution to society? 28 years of my life, I've been working on this portrait. It's lonely out there on the road. You gotta love where you can. I love Darlene. I'm not saying you don't love your wife. Yeah, it's hard being on the road, alone. It looks a lot like her, but Darlene's much prettier. Do you want me to show you how I do it? Do you think she'll like your masterpiece when you're done with it? Masterpiece. I like the ring of that. Pay attention. You're not taking advantage of her, are you? Are you sure? For my second featured review on this episode is going to be Rucker. This is from here in 2022. This was directed by Amy Hesketh, who also co-wrote this with Aaron Drain. This stars Bobby C. King, Cheyenne Lee, and Corey Taylor, while also featuring Leona Britt, Jessica Cameron, Jennifer True, Jay Wyatt, Randall S. Powell, Kate... Gugio, Deb Campbell, Sean Pickering, Vivin King, Vicky Blue Dot, Kay Lemon Rivera, Chloe Jacobson, Alicia Dove, Richie Jacobson, and Deidre L. Lawless. This is a horror thriller film that is from the United States. 
It is currently sitting on a 3.3 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a trucker attempts to reconnect with his family by killing women who remind him of his ex-wife. So this is another movie that I sought out looking for 2022 releases during January. This would be around the second week where there are limited time and I'm trying to keep on pace for movies released during the year. The movie sounded interesting from the brief synopsis I was looking at and just gave to you. So I was, you know, also trying to confirm that it was horror. Other than that, I came to this one blind. So before I get to the movie itself, let me do some featured notes on some people here. Our director of Hesketh has six credits. Of them, this is the only one that I've seen. Five of them are in horror, with her first being from 2012 called Bluebeard. She followed that with Le Marquis de la Croix, Olala, and Paranoia Tapes. Now, I've not seen any of these ones, as I was saying. And then as a writer, she also has three credits. The other two, besides this movie here, are Bluebeard and Le Marquis de la Croix. Now, her co-writer of Drain has two credits. His first was Fear Clinic. Now, I have not heard of that one as of yet. So, this is the only movie from him that I've also seen. So, then, to our cast. I'll start with King, who has 17 credits. Of them, I've now seen two. The first one would be Would You Rather, which I did enjoy this movie there. And then, I've actually seen that one twice. That was one that I saw at Family Video, and then most recently for the Summer Challenge series. But in genre, he has seven, with the first one being Starship Troopers 2. Now, I know I've seen part of that movie, but I'm not positive I've made it all the way through there or not. And it's been some time since that viewing. Now, some other ones are Starve, The Horde, St. Agatha, and The Current Occupant as well. Haven't seen any of those ones at this time. And then this is Lee's feature film debut. Now, I never put this together until collecting information that Corey Taylor in this is the lead singer of Slipknot, as well as Stone Sour. He has 40 credits to go along with this movie here. Six are in horror with Fear Clinic as the first. He also was in Search of Darkness 1 and 2, Bad Candy, and another documentary called The History of Metal and Horror before being in this movie here. I am intrigued to check out more of what he's done as well because I am a Slipknot fan. So now for this movie here, we are following Leif Rucker, portrayed by King. He drives a truck, as he puts it. With him is Maggie Goodnow, portrayed by Lee. I found this to be interesting as he's talking to her, but it is set up like a faux documentary. Rucker, as he goes by, is telling all of this to Maggie while he is talking to the camera. I found this to be interesting, especially for how much knowledge is here into the world of trucking. He also, we get to meet some of other truck drivers he is friends with, like Taco Tuesday, portrayed by Taylor, Corndog, portrayed by Pickering, and King Mojo, portrayed by King. Now, we get to know Rucker better, and we know that he's married to Darlene, portrayed by Vicky Blue Dot. She used to come on the road with him, but that stopped. Rucker is still in love with her. As things go on, we learn that they are no longer together, but Rucker is clinging to getting her back. Not everything he is saying, though, is true. There is a darker side to our lead, and Maggie is exploring to get into that. Now, as the synopsis states, Rucker is a serial killer. He is killing different women at different stops that have parts of Darlene in them. When Maggie tries to delve deeper into this, we learn that she also has a darkness within her. She reveals that she once did a mercy killing on someone who was dying of cancer. The longer these two are together, there are secrets that are revealed, and the deeper they go into them, the two are more connected than Rucker originally knows. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap for this movie. There isn't a lot to the story, as this is more of a character study. Originally, I thought this was just going to be fleshing out the character of Rucker. The more we get into this, though, the more we learn about Maggie. This makes for some interesting information. Before moving away from this, I will say that we have some intriguing reveals, and the story that is built sucked me in. It does come with some flaws, though, as things play out, in my opinion.
I think where I should start digging deeper was the character of Rucker, as he, of course, is a truck driver. I like that this movie has him as a serial killer. This is something that is based in fact, and I could see him killing for as long as he has. He does drive to the same areas for the most part of his runs, but he's still a transient. I like how he disposes of the bodies as well. It is something I've seen in another movie before, but when Maggie asks him about this, he tells her he saw someone else do this. That was eerie, as I know there are multiple serial killers who have worked like this as like truck drivers or at least traveled these roads like this. They are hard to track down and to convict. The reason that he is killing also worked for me. He is delusional and descending into madness, so I could buy what he's doing here. I will give credit to King, as I thought his portrayal of the character was good. There is an awkwardness to him that felt real, but he isn't great, but he worked for what he needed in this role. Then going along with this, I want to look at the co-star of Maggie. In the beginning, we think that she is passive in all this. The more we learn, the more that we see she is connected in a deeper way. I didn't like the ultimate reveal for her. It would have played better for me if the psychosis of the two is what brought them together and connected them. Regardless of how I feel, I think that Lee was good in portraying Maggie. This movie gave me a vibe of something like Man Bites Dog, where our crew slowly becomes part of the subject, and I can work with that for sure. So I want to go next would be this movie starting out as a faux documentary. For a good part of the first act, we are getting found footage as Maggie is videoing Rucker. Around the start of the second act, it shifts to being filmed like a normal movie. This caught me off guard. It doesn't ruin it, it just feels like they wanted to go one way. When they realized it wouldn't work, they shifted. I was able to settle in after that still. There are some of the realism we get here that is lost though. I do think the cinematography is well done. I still want to give credit there. And then going along with this idea, I'll shift over to the effects. I thought for the most part they were good. We get some throat slits that look great. There was quite a bit of blood, which was also, you know, realistic and good. I will admit there's a bit of CGI with some of the spray that I noticed. It does hurt it a bit. And we also get these interesting cartoons that are interspersed. They are showing instead of telling the letters to Rutger and what the letters are conveying. I don't mind the idea here, especially since the writer of the letter gets older, the animations become sharper. There was good care there. The problem that I had is that I don't love it being done with animation. I understand the use of it though, so I can't hold it against the movie there too much. Then I think I will next go to the acting. I've already said that I like King and Lee, and I liked that they got to show some other truckers that felt real enough. I will give credit to Taylor, Pickering, and King. I thought the victims were fine as well with Leona Britt, Jessica Cameron, Jennifer True, Kate Gigio, and Deb Campbell, to name a few. Overall, I would say the acting was fine, but there were times where emotions weren't coming through when it was needed. But I mean, I will say I've seen much worse. So in conclusion here, I did have low expectations coming in. This movie surprised me with some of the things that we got. I thought the concept behind the movie was good. Taking something real like a truck driver who is a serial killer is interesting. Doing a faux documentary you get to know them also worked for me. I think that King was good as Rucker and Lee was Maggie. That portrayal was fine. Most of the effects worked and I thought how this was shot was solid. My issue then comes with the shift in filming style and the idea of using animation. Neither ruined the movie, but for the most part, the acting was fine and despite some issues with CGI, the movie is interesting. Since I wasn't there for the reveals later in the movie, it did end up dragging on too long as well. And I would say that we get some interesting songs for the soundtrack that worked for me. 
I would rate this as just over average, though. If this sounds interesting, I'd give this one a go, as you could do much worse, in my opinion. I'd wait for this to come to a free service, though, as I did have to rent this one. So my rating here for Rucker is going to be a 6 out of 10. Now, there wasn't any trivia on the IMDb page, and I'm not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show. I would like to welcome you back one last time, and then just to close everything out here for episode 115, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can send me any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have run on the show, just let me know in there. And then if you'd like to read any of written reviews of anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the horror and non-horror films that I watch and review alike. And then if you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And then I'll be posting all the movie posters or anything that I'm reviewing over on both of those. And then just to make everything easier on you, I will also have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you listen to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like so I can get out to more listeners out there as well. So then for the next episode for you is going to be another of the New Year New Movie thing that I'm doing over here. The Randomizer selected a movie that I know some people absolutely love, and I'm almost assuming that is because of a release that it got, while all their people just absolutely hate this movie, and that is Spookies. And then I also went to see the new Scream movie as well. I've already got that review written and recorded and everything like that. Just need to go ahead and post it. So that will be the two featured views on that episode. And then I also believe that I'm going to be watching a Trek Through the Twos. It's going to be another 1932 movie of, I believe, Murders in the Room Morgue. Don't really think there's anything else that I need to get you up to speed with here. So what I will say then in closing is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and do it and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. And I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>